rejection of authority. Rejection of authority comes in many forms. I ought to know, I was a school teacher. Uh, It can be casual and secretive or it can be more obvious and aggressive. It can be a student quietly playing with their phone under the desk and thinking I can't see it. Or it can be open defiance, distraction of others, rudeness, disobedience. But both of them are still rejection of authority, whatever form it takes. Uh, Earlier this year, Russian agents allegedly used a deadly nerve agent, Novichok, hidden in a perfume bottle to poison a former Russian spy in England. That's one form of a rejection of authority. It's sneaky, it's underhanded. Then there's rejection of authority at the other end of the scale, uh, a little more obvious. July this year, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani warned America that any conflict with Iran would be the mother of all wars. Well, that's just a red rag to, the bull, to a bull for Donald Trump. He tweeted his reply uh, in all caps, mind you, to Iranian President Rouhani, never ever threaten the United States again or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. Uh, Hopefully that's all bark and no bite. But that's at the opposite end of the scale, isn't it? Uh, There's nothing casual, there's nothing secretive uh, about that. It's obvious and it's aggressive. Two different situations, two different strategies, but there's that same attitude of rejection of authority that works itself out. And we see the same thing in today's passage. Uh, It's people rejecting Jesus' authority, but in different ways. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. It's the city of the king. The expectation's been building for weeks. And now the king arrives. How will he be received? We know what the Jewish leaders think. They want to get rid of him. But what about the people? They seem to quite like the idea of a conqueror. Someone with God's backing who will bring miracles and bring in a new golden age for Israel. But even before Jesus gets there, he's making a statement about the sort of king that he's going to be. He gets to the Mount of Olives, it's a few kilometres outside of Jerusalem, and he sends two of his disciples into a nearby village to fetch a donkey or a colt, a young horse perhaps, other Gospels say donkey. When they come back, they get it ready for Jesus. Uh, he, he jumps on and they start to ride towards Jerusalem and he's deliberately fulfilling prophecies from Zechariah. Uh, in Zechariah, God had promised that one day he'd send a king, would be a special kind of king. Uh, listen to the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, Your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, but here's the next bit, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then God continues, I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. That's the prophecy and that's the image that Jesus chooses to reflect his kingdom. A kingdom of gentle donkeys. Not dangerous war horses, 
a kingdom of peace, of breaking bows, not firing them. And so with that symbol in place, Jesus heads towards Jerusalem riding this donkey. And at least to begin with, the crowd seems to be getting into the swing of it. Verse 37, he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The whole crowd, recognising miracles, recognising Jesus' kingship, recognising God's hand on Jesus. Surely this will turn out well. Or perhaps not. As we keep reading, there's a couple of dark shadows that hang over the spectacle. First up, there's the hatred of the Pharisees. It resurfaces, verse 39. How dare Jesus accept the title of King, of Messiah? And they tell Jesus to rebuke the disciples. But Jesus replies that the crowd has got it right, at least for the moment. He says there in verse 40, I could tell them to... I could tell them to be quiet, but if they kept quiet, the stones would cry out. If the creatures won't recognise the king, then the creation will. The creation will recognise its author, its goal. That's the right response to God's king, to worship and praise him. Well, that's the first dark cloud. We'll, We'll hear more of the leaders into the next chapter. Uh, There it'll be the priests and the scribes and the elders. But here's the second dark cloud. It's from Jesus himself, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. As he he rides down the hill from the Mount of Olives and he sees the walls of Jerusalem and then Jerusalem above it on the hill on the other side, he weeps. And he said, if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. It's interesting, isn't it? As much as Jesus was enjoying the praise, enjoying the moment, he knows what's ahead. He knows how fleeting and shallow the cheers are. He knows that waving is not the same as commitment. Cheers and waves one day quickly will become jeers and insults. On the surface, the crowd is accepting Jesus as king, but it's only passing. It's not commitment. It's not faith. Within a short period of time, Jesus will be arrested and that same crowd that cheered see their military hope in Roman chains. And they quickly turn on him and they jeer and they call for his death. Over in chapter 23, it's only a page or two over in your Bibles. Pilate wants to release Jesus because he's innocent, but the crowd with one voice say, 
He's a loser. Away with him. Crucify him. It's a sorry tale. My guess is that day as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, many of that cheering crowd never thought that that's the way things would turn out. They honestly believed they were on Jesus' side, that he was going to be king. But Jesus looks at all those cheering people and he knows their hearts, he knows what's coming and he weeps. He's not weeping for himself, he's he's weeping for their blindness. He's weeping for their rebellious and stubborn hearts and he's weeping at the judgement that's coming on them and on Jerusalem for their rejection of him. Because waving is not the same as commitment. One of the annual events uh, our church at Blacktown was involved in was the Fusion Advent Pageant. Fusion's a, a parachurch Christian group out that way that does a lot of work and they organised a lot of the school scripture kids to turn up at the West Point Blacktown Shopping Centre and there'd be hundreds of kids dressed up in uh, Christmas costumes lots of Marys, lots of Josephs and soldiers and shepherds and we'd wander through the shopping centre and we'd sing Christmas carols and at different points we'd stop and ask if there was any room at the inn at a particular shop and as we walked there were lots of people who stopped and looked and waved shoppers waved shop assistants waved some started clapping some sang along with the Christmas carols Now some of them were probably Christians but I'm sure there were plenty who weren't. Among all those smiling faces there were plenty who were happy to see children doing it. Children keeping the spirit of Christmas alive, whatever that is. But plenty who were happy to make the wave or the cheer the extent of their commitment. And they went home feeling good about themselves, that they'd waved. But waving is not the same thing as commitment. There's a line from Jesus Christ Superstar, the stage musical. The crowd sing it as Jesus enters Jerusalem. They sing, Christ, you know I love you. Did you see I waved? I believe in you and God, so tell me that I'm saved. But there's a much bigger difference between waving and being saved. It's not just changing a letter. There's plenty of people today in Sydney, out there, walking up and down Liverpool Road, who are saying something similar. Christ, you know I love you. Did you see I go to church most weeks? I'm from Australia and we're a Christian country. Did you see I gave money to the Salvo appeal? Did you see I waved at the Fusion Advent pageant as it marched past? Did you see I try to be good? Christ, you know I love you. Did you see I waved? I believe in you and God, so tell me that I'm saved. But it's not enough. And Jesus weeps. We need to recognise him and not miss him because 
People are risking judgment just as Jerusalem did. Jesus came to bring peace and forgiveness to be your king. If you cheer him as your king, you need to live with him as your king. If he's king, then he needs to be king over all your life. He needs to be king over your head and your heart and your hands and your feet, king over your emotions and your thoughts and your desires, king at home and at work, king in your friendships, king of your future. That's what he wants. If it's in just one of those areas that you're only waving, that you're only half-hearted in, it's not enough. Are you serious about Jesus being king in everything? He doesn't just want a wave every now and then. You can't palm off Jesus like that. Jesus weeps at that sort of treatment. Don't treat him like that. And so with tears in his eyes, Jesus heads to Jerusalem and goes straight to the the centre the temple, it's his father's house, it's, it's the middle of the problem. He drives out the merchants to purify it, to reform it, to make it the sort of place where people might actually begin to hear and understand and see and believe. And so that's what he does, he spends his days there teaching, calling people to see, to recognise him as, as king. But the rejection of the leaders is obvious and extreme. Donald Trump-like, perhaps. Verse 47. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. He's always surrounded. There's no opportunity. You can see another of their attempts at the start of chapter 20. They they begin with the obvious frontal attack. Who gave you the authority to say what you say? But that one fails. Jesus turns that aside. The second half of chapter 20, they they take a different approach. They try the, the underhanded, sneaky rejection, trying to make Jesus slip up to say the wrong thing, but that doesn't work either. Meanwhile, Jesus keeps teaching. One of the things he teaches is there in verse 9, a parable about the leaders, an illustration of of their rejection and rebellion. It's a very Aussie sort of story, I think. A landowner who plants a vineyard. There's hundreds of those people. A Pitt Street farmer, he buys a hobby hobby farm up in the Hunter Valley. Uh, 10 or 20 acres, He appoints some some locals to to farm it. They they plant a few grapes and he leaves them to to farm it. Harvest time comes, the owner sends a servant to collect his share of the crop, to collect the rent. But the farmers, in a very Aussie way, the, the workers are united against the tall poppy. Verse 10, the tenants beat the servant and send him away empty handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. By rejecting the servants, they're rejecting the owner himself. 
rebelling against the one who gave them the vineyard to farm. In some ways it's an Aussie story, but it's also a very Jewish story. It's straight out of Isaiah chapter 5, where God describes the vineyard that is Israel, that God built. The tenants are God's leaders, Israel's leaders, appointed by God to look after, to nurture the vineyard. The servants that God sends are God's prophets, delivering his message. But the leaders have always refused to listen to God's prophets. If you like, Jesus' parable is summarising the whole Old Testament narrative of Israel. From Joshua entering the land to right up to the present day. Jesus continues bringing the story into the present. Verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my son whom I love, perhaps they'll respect him. When the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, let's kill him and then the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They're no longer content to be just tenants. They, they want independence. They want the land for themselves. They want to be their own boss. They want to run the farm their way without anyone telling them what to do. And in their thinking, if they kill the son, the one who is set to inherit, then the land will be theirs as belong as because they're the occupiers. I don't know if that's legal or not. But that's what they do. They kill the son. It's a, it's a bold quest for autonomy. It sounds extreme, but it's the same sort of autonomy that people show when they live their life their way with themselves on the throne instead of Jesus. It's a natural human inclination to reject the authority of the landowner. It's sin, it's rebellion and Jesus promises judgement for those who live like that. In the story, the owner comes down heavily. He kills the tenants and gives the vineyard to others. In Jesus' story, the identity of the son is obvious, it's Jesus. Israel wouldn't listen to the prophets and so God sends his son and the end of the story is Jesus' warning to those who are listening. Be careful you don't reject me the way the farmer, uh, the way the, the tenants killed the son. Judgment comes on that sort of rebellion. Don't be like them. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's a warning from Jesus but it falls on deaf ears. Rather than heed the warning, it hardens their hatred. Verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he'd spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. As we keep reading through the rest of the chapter, we see more of their plans unfolding. But what about you? Uh, Where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? We've already talked about you as a face in the crowd, the crowd who waves. Are you a face in the crowd? 
perhaps following Jesus when the going's easy, perhaps happy to wave as long as there's not too much else expected. But Jesus valued you so much, he died for you. What does your life say about how much you are valuing him? Jesus wants more than waving. Or maybe your rejection is like that of the leaders, more obvious and open. If that's you, then you need to heed Jesus' warning. You may not like the idea, but God, God's judgement is coming for people who continue to make that claim of independence like the tenants from God, who seek to ignore Jesus' claims. So be warned. But most of us are living with Jesus as our King. That's most of us here. So where are we in the story? Well, let's follow Jesus' example. Let's weep for our city. Let's weep for a lost city, a blind city, a city that's headed for hell. That all seems big and impersonal perhaps to you, but let me put it this way. Weep for your next door neighbours. Weep for your walking buddies or your relatives. Weep for your school friends or your teammates or your work colleagues. They're blind and lost. They might dress well, they might be successful, they might look happy, but they're blind and lost. They're rebelling against Jesus. They're headed for judgement. Weep for them. Pray for them. Pray with tears. Pray for opportunities. Pray for courage. Pray that they would be open. Then ask them to something. Ask them to dinner. Ask them to church. Ask them to read the Bible with you over lunch once a week. Ask them what they think about God, Christian things. If you're anything like me, you're nervous just thinking about that. But there is at least one place I'm guessing you have never placed yourself in this story as. And that's as the donkey. Jesus didn't need a donkey to take him to the city. He was quite capable of walking into the city on his own, but he chose to use a donkey. It's the same for us, isn't it? Jesus chooses to use us donkeys to take him to this city. We are his preferred method of introducing himself to the city. Uh, Even if we have got long ears, bandy legs, bowed backs and we make a funny noise when we open our mouths. But King Jesus has chosen us to take to carry him to our city, to bring his message of peace. And even if I am a donkey, I'm going to give it my best shot because Jesus is my king. He brings me peace and eternity with God and he wants to do the same for this city. Uh, Will you join me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see the lost the way Jesus does. 
that you would help us to see Jesus the way that we ought, that we might see the commitment that he requires of us and that we might honour him in how we respond. Amen.